Hello, Radio Cachimbona listeners. I am very excited today to bring you the first part of a two-part virtual teach-in. I participated in a May 7th roundtable that was hosted by the University of Arizona to commemorate the abolitionist actions taken by the Arizona Three against the presence of fully armed Border Patrol agents on the University of Arizona campus. In the midst of a pandemic, deepening inequality and injustice call on all of us to build solidarity across movements for a more livable and vibrant world for us all. As the Coalition for the Arizona Three, their goal is to create a virtual community of people both here locally and nationally to continue the ongoing calls to hashtag free them all, abolish mass incarceration, and other forms of detention related to it. The roundtable discussion that I participated in was focused on the local Arizona hashtag free them all and to keep them free community organizing and abolition in Arizona. And it featured some of the most vibrant abolitionist organizing in Arizona that I'm honored to be a part of. Work that challenges the hegemonic status of Arizona as a red state. Importantly centering the voices of those directly impacted, the roundtable discussion and conversation highlighted the work and efforts of local groups such as the hashtag Keep Free Deportation Defense Campaign, a community-based def- defense campaign against the deportation proceedings faced by organizer and abolitionist Alejandra Pablos, and Tierra Rainey of the Tucson Second Chance Bail Fund, who also talks to us about how their work is done through an abolitionist frame. The conversation was rich, and I learned so much, and again, was honored to be a part of it. I hope you all enjoy. Again, if you appreciate the work that I'm doing, please feel free to support me on Patreon. For $5 a month, you'll get content like this, except every single week. And you'll also help support the ongoing efforts of transitioning to podcasting full-time. So I already hope that you're following on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Radio Cachimbona. We're having really rad conversations on there and would love to have more of you join. And finally, please, 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 if you appreciate what I'm doing, leave an Apple podcast review. It really helps with visibility. And shout out to the amazing Chapina who left me a really sweet Apple podcast review this past Thursday. It made my day. All right. Hope you'll enjoy the roundtable. My name is Alejandra Pablos. Thank you so much for everyone for being here. We've been working really hard to uh, create a space where we can have uh, one of the very first conversations, right? Because um, this is going to take several conversations, years of of work to do from our community. So let me introduce myself again. My pronouns are uh, she and they. I'm in Phoenix, Arizona. As Gloria said, Tahana Otom Land. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. I'm with the Keep Alefri Deportation Defense Campaign, where I'm fighting my own deportation case. I've been fighting for almost 10 years now. I'm a reproductive justice organizer and a storyteller, and I share my experience being in detentions as a form of resistance. 
I also organize with a grassroots action group called Arizona Freedom All, where we are currently trying to get people released from cages, prisons, and immigration cages by any means necessary. So really keeping up with consistent escalations and pressure for these state elected officials to, to do something to help our community. So thank you for inviting me and, and a couple of my favorite comrades in this work. So thank you all. Hi, Eve. Hi, Tiara. Yeah, so it's an honor to host this conversation with the U of A, uh, with U of A alumni particularly. I graduated from the U of A in 2009, but I graduated to go straight to serve my first jail day. Two months work furlough, so that means I, I slept at Arpaio's tent city for two months. And for folks that may not know who Arpaio is, uh, he's notoriously known for terrorizing immigrant communities with worker raids, right? He's the one that got pardoned by Trump on Trump's second day in office. You know, probably was a man that had 10 city again with chain gangs in Maricopa County, right? So that was my first time uh, getting convicted of a charge and going to jail and getting a felony and now being deported for it. So I, again, I just been fighting my deportation cases since 2011 and that's when ICE came into the picture, took me from probation, spent two years at Eloy Detention Center, so just wanted to give a little context of what really has informed me uh, as an organizer and why I call myself an abolitionist. So first, let me say that as a set of political beliefs, abolition, particularly the prison industrial complex abolition work is based on feelings of what is possible. And I can't stress that enough that in the world that's always had exploitation, caging and roots and white supremacy, we like we must ask, like, what else is possible? Right. Like this is just not working. So I'm an abolitionist simply because I'm in conversations of just that. What is possible? It's about creating new models for living. Right. Some of these new models that we are already experimenting, like mutual aid, are led and created with the most impacted. So these models are to protect and defend families that are criminalized. And those models of support are of care instead of punishment and, and punitive and disposing of people, right, that we care about. It looks like being a part of these communities and grassroots efforts that we're creating, right? These are vessels that are creating political education for folks that, that intentionally have not uh, had this access, right, that we've been ignored and pushed out to the margins. But we've always been here. We've always, we've always been at the center of it all. So for me, it's about imagining a future where communities are strong uh, for people to come home to, even as we're working to, like, shut down all the cages, right? And that's what we do as organizers now, uh, using the power of story to let go of stigma and shame that systems of oppression have imposed on us, and we're rebuking them. So you will hear most of us here refer referencing a lot of critical resistance work. It's a, it's a beautiful toolkit. They've done a lot of work to really produce resources and tools for us to be able to have conversations like we're having today. So I just wanted to shout them out, and, and that's it. Thank you. Um, I'll pass it on. everyone. Thank you, Ale. Hi, Tierra. Thank you. Thank you all for moderating this. I am the host of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that follows my journey navigating practicing civil rights law as a first-generation professional. The podcast is an audio archive of all of the really fierce resistance that's happening in the southern Arizona borderlands. And as the daughter of Salvadorian asylum seekers, I also try and center Central American voices. I am also a part of the Arizona Freedom All Coalition, which Ale said is a coalition of folks trying to get people out of detention and out of jails and prisons, particularly in this moment of COVID-19. And I am the legal coordinator for uh, the Keep Ale Free Deportation Defense Team. 
So it's funny that we're using the critical resistance toolkit because it was critical resistance that introduced me to the idea that prison and police didn't need to exist. I was a 1L at Stanford Law School when that seed was planted in my head. And as I progressed through law school, I got to see, I started to see who these future prosecutors to be were, these very white and wealthy privileged people who were either misguided white saviors who thought they were doing good for the world or just people with high key white supremacist vibes. And I, I took a class from this liberal professor who was revered at the law school, even though she was the person who created sentencing algorithms. So this white woman was claiming that sentencing algorithms that use race as predictive factors for sentencing was something that was removing bias. Oh, oh what was the issue that judges were discriminating against black and brown folks? What was the solution? an algorithm that won't be biased. Well, actually all that it did is bake in that bias into that algorithm. And that was a professor who was quote unquote liberal. And so I, I also took a constitutional history class where I learned about the black coats, the laws that were instituted post-slavery to justify incarcerating mass amounts of black folks for just for the purpose of forced labor as a way to still bolster particularly the Southern economy that was so dependent on that exploitative labor. When I was a 1L, I also visited an Alabama County jail as part of the Southern Poverty Law Project's Detention Conditions Project. So this Alabama County Jail was being used as an ICE facility and that practice that ICE has of using jail, of using jail facilities in particular for detention is really deplorable because they're only meant to be temporary. And so the ICE detainees who had been held there for long periods of time, like two years, hadn't seen sunlight because the jail that they were in didn't have a rec yard. And so that, all of these things put together were when I just, I just remember, particularly after that visit, feeling profoundly disturbed and feeling like my life couldn't go back to normal and it couldn't go forward without really reconciling the realities that I had seen. And so that was law school. That was kind of me studying abolition. But then I moved to Tucson, Arizona to do detained deportation defense at Eloy and La Palma detention centers, which are two of the worst ICE facilities in terms of the number of deaths in custody and medical neglect there. And that also was really where I witnessed the merging of the criminal and the immigration systems because of the reasons that people end up in custody and the punishment of asylum seekers through prolonged detention. Through the Kino Border Initiative, I know that 40% of deportees in Nogales, Sonora, end up in ICE custody or Border Patrol custody because of some interaction with local law enforcement. And more often than not, that interaction is actually just a routine traffic stop. So to me, it became very clear that abolishing immigration detention also requires a parallel fight to abolish the punishment system as well because they're intertwined. And the purported purpose of these institutions to eliminate crime and rehabilitate people who have done wrong and in the immigration context to make sure that folks attend their immigration courts just fall apart once you actually start interrogating them. Prisons and police don't stop harm from happening. They're just systems that allow the state to exploit folks who are vulnerable, poor black and brown folks. The prison system preys on the vulnerable, folks who are poor, mentally ill, and folks with addiction issues and exploits them for their labor. The 13th Amendment abolishing slavery literally carved out an exception 
for incarcerated people, and that's not a coincidence. And in regards to the immigration context, it's just false that detention makes people more likely to attend their court. Most immigrants actually do attend their immigration court statistically. And a report released this year showed that asylum seekers are actually 99% likely to go to their immigration court hearings when they're released. So it's just, it's important to actually just interrogate the purpose of these institutions. And once I interrogated that for myself, it was profit. Thank you and I'll pass it to Hi everyone. So my name is Tara Rainey, she, her, hers, and I'm with the Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund, obviously based here in Tucson, Arizona. Ale, thank you so much for inviting me to be a part of this conversation. So I think everyone's already kind of touched on abolition writ large. What brought me to abolition, I think in many ways, it didn't happen overnight, right? And I think that that's, that's an important place to lead this conversation, especially if you're, you're entering this space really not being sure. You will not become an abolitionist overnight. Most of us don't start there anyways, right? For me, it was a long political awakening. I'm a second generation Black Tucsonan, so I'm from here. This is my home, but I lived on the East Coast for probably about a decade, working in government contracting and the international development space. And I think part of my larger, I, I would say I was always liberal, right? And I, I definitely believed in these larger concepts of justice and equity. I was never someone who denied the presence of racism and I think the wear and tear of systemic oppression um, but it was specifically working overseas in environments like Afghanistan that I think really radicalized me and my analysis and understanding how white supremacy takes many different forms, especially imperialism, and understanding that the root of liberation actually was sown at home. So I moved back to Tucson several years ago, and it is, I'm, it's my privilege and also uh, to my horror sometimes annoyance that I do activism with my family. My sister is very much in, this, in the movement. My mother is the one who founded the Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund. She is the director of the program. So we are one of the few Black-led organizations in the state. And we have to say that we are from this place. And so we know it and we fight for it. So abolition to me is twofold. As, as already kind of mentioned, it is about liberation to me. Um, it's about tearing down the systems and cages and the cops that don't, in fact, improve safety, right? But it's also really about envisioning what instead. And I think that that's, that's actually the heart of it. Most people think abolition is just burn it down. Yes, we want to burn it down, but we are also fighting tooth and nail to create communities that are thriving, right? Because these in many ways are, are the, the impetus, I think, for much of the, the pain and oppression of the communities that we are often interfacing with. And while the Tucson Second Chance Community Bail Fund mainly does criminal work, 
Um, so it's only interfacing with the criminal justice system. So the Pima County Jail in our case, we recognize the importance of intersectionality in all of our analysis because exactly these are all issues, whether it's immigrant detention or even Pima County Jail. Pima County Jail does have people that are undocumented being held there. They do have a detainer with ICE. So all of these issues, I think, are part of our community. And I think that that the larger narrative about crimigation is such an important intersection. And I'm really happy to be a part of this conversation and, and delve deeper into all this stuff with everyone. Hi, thank you so much. Thank you, Elena, who will be our sort of PowerPoint person. So before we get started, we wanted to go over some guidelines so again, right, we informed everyone in the email that we're going to be recording this for archiving purposes. Yvette will be, um, you know, some of this uh, recording will be used for Radio Cachimbona as well as an excerpt. We're going to take some excerpts from this to do a post for the Abolition Journal of Insurgent Politics. And again, I want to remind folks that you can change your name and your pronouns, use the chat to communicate with us, always ask for consent, and also just be mindful that we will not tolerate xenophobia, racism, sexism, transphobia, homophobia, fatphobia, ableism, and any pro-law enforcement border patrol narrative. We also, we will have a peacekeeper. Her name is Alexa. So if there's any issue that comes up, I want to encourage folks to reach out to Alexa and let her know. So, you know, we sort of talked a little bit about abolition and we're going to sort of continue talking about it. And I wanted to give the opportunity to Yvette to see if she had any other things to add about what it's like to be an abolitionist through a legal sort of perspective. And I think some of this question, and then, you know, maybe we can talk a little bit about if we can go back, if we can talk a little bit about some of the differences between a reformist attitude within your conversation of a legal framework, and maybe talk a little bit about what are some of the differences that you see between reform and at, like prison reform versus prison abolition. Yeah, thank you. So this is something that I have to think about all the time because working within the legal system, even just my presence within there can, it, it validates the legal system as a, as a valid way of solving our problems. And if you're somebody who doesn't believe in prisons and if you don't believe in police, but you're working within the legal system, you have to constantly interrogate those contradictions. So an abolitionist reform is one that does not, that helps folks get out now, helps folks get out in the short term, and also doesn't strengthen the prison industrial complex in the long term. And this seems like it might be an easier analysis than it actually is, right? So one example of a reformist reform that maybe did we might not have thought of as a reformist reform at first was the 1970s push to end indeterminate sentencing. So in the 70s, there were these really indeterminate sentences, like literally between one year to life. And so parole boards and prison administrators had uh, a ton of, of discretion in terms of when they would let people go. And of course, what, what would we think would happen? Black and brown folks were incarcerated for longer periods of time because of 
this. So this led to determinate sentencing. And folks thought it was a win at first, but what did that do? It actually just paved the way for zero tolerance and three strikes laws that now pretty much have the same effect of indeterminate sentencing, which is that black and brown folks are incarcerated for way too long for given life sentences or 25 years or more. So an example of an abolitionist reform, a victory in the short term that doesn't strengthen the system in the long run is ending the death penalty, for example, right? That doesn't strengthen reliance on the prison system and it actually helps people who are either currently convicted or who might be sentenced in the future. In my day job, I'm a lawyer with the ACLU of Arizona and to be clear, I am here in my personal capacity in the ways that I mentioned, and my views are not those of my employers, but the work that I do is instructive to this conversation because I, I'm the, a border litigation attorney and I focus specifically on immigration detention conditions cases. And conditions litigation is exactly where you need to be thinking about abolitionist reforms instead of reformist reforms. So cases that I've worked on include the Doe versus Wolf case, which is the first case in the country to challenge the constitutionality of border patrol conditions, and that's in the Tucson sector. The Jacobson case about First Amendment rights to monitor checkpoints, the Erdineta case to release habeas petitioners from La Palma Detention Center, the racial profiling case against the Maricopa County Sheriff's Office and the Parsons class action case about medical and mental health care in Arizona state prisons. So all of these cases in, in one way or another are challenging law enforcement, challenging some carceral institution. And actually all these cases have strengthened my commitment to abolitionist work. <laughs> so I think the Doe case is a good way of, it's a good example of thinking through reformist versus abolitionist reforms. The Doe case began in 2015 with interviews of folks recently released from Yeleras who testified to really horrific mistreatment within them. The Yeleras are Border Patrol short-term detention facilities. There was medical neglect, overcrowding, abuse from agents. The literal temperatures of the facilities, that's why they're called Yeleras, are ice boxes in Spanish, frozen or inedible food. And so finally, with all that evidence compiled, it was submitted to the court. And a year later, the judge granted a preliminary injunction. A preliminary, a preliminary injunction is something that the judge grants when they believe that there will be irreparable harm that will happen if they, the court doesn't intervene. I want to, and the preliminary injunction ordered Border Patrol to give people a mat and a mylar blanket after 12 hours in custody. And I want to pause right there to say this is exactly why the court system is inadequate because even though this was a very pushing the envelope case and that it was the first case suing Border Patrol over the constitutionality of their detention conditions, it is absolutely unacceptable that after all the things that I just listed, that the final outcome would be people get a, a mat and an aluminum blanket. But finally, in this, this year, we won the case, and so we had to decide what remedies we would suggest to the judge. Unfortunately, one thing that was considered was, was giving Border Patrol more funding so that they could create tent facilities and decrease crowding in their detention centers. That's a reformist reform that strengthens Border Patrol. The remedy that I suggested was that Border Patrol needed to release everyone after 48 hours in their custody. That's an abolitionist reform. So 
those are just the kinds of things that I'm always thinking about. Thank you so much, Yvette. So now I'm gonna, I wanna turn to Alejandra and talk a little bit about the criminalization um, of our communities. And so here, I think that we often hear this narrative of particularly in Arizona as being a sort of, you know, a space where a lot of these criminalizing policies get enacted and we see them later on at, on like a national scale. So I was wondering, Ale, if you can speak about some of the criminalizing policies here in Arizona and why it's important to take the time to break down the everyday significance of zero tolerance immigration policies. Woohoo, good question. Very important question. I'm gonna try to slow down because I naturally talk really fast, y'all. But just a reminder, people can stretch, can stretch and drink some water while we're listening. It's a lot of a lot of being spoken of, maybe sometimes a lot of new language. So thank y'all for bearing with us. So yeah, so I mean, first of all, I know that you know Tiara just shared the word crimmigration. And for folks that don't know what crimmigration means, I mean, simply stated, it's the two areas of law where criminal and immigration kind of intersect. Um, actually, up until the 1980s, citizens and non-citizens were mostly, mostly um, punished alike, right, for, for, for convictions, regardless of your citizenship status. But around 35 years ago, criminal and immigration law began to really mingle. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. But suddenly a lot of non-citizens with criminal charges, like myself, were also facing possible immigration penalties as well. Which is why I'm committed to the task of building the necessary political power to shift stigmatizing mainstream narratives. That's literally what we do in the, at the Keep Alifi deportation case. We help broaden the immigrant rights movement by including the voices of the voices and the issues of immigrants with criminal convictions. We are not our convictions, right? We're here to shift shift narrative and really recognize who we're pointing the finger, and that's at state elected officials, lawmakers, right? So the root of the U.S. immigration system in general is a white supremacist regime. We all know that. It's a, it's a regime of ex, expulsion, expulsion, deportation, always violence, right? There's always been uh, violence and exploitation. So the immigration system is about keeping people out of this country and removing others who are already, already here, right? So that's expulsion and exclusion. The ruling class uses the criminal justice and immigration systems to target and control members of our communities based on race, right? That's, that's known. We know that. They say that we are threats to their safety because demonizing us is how they exploit us, right? So race-based exclusions and expulsions, which are these deportations, have impacted indigenous people, right, in our land, uh, in our land here. Right now this wall, right, is literally, um, you know, original native land is also being impacted. So the forced migration and the genocidal displacement that, that attempted to destroy our, our people um, continues to work this day in tandem with all the systems, our government systems that are here historically, and um, you know, excluding and expulsing, expulsion, expulsing our communities instead of actually supporting. Right. So let me slow it down a little bit. Criminalization. Again, we speak a little bit about how our communities have been torn apart by criminalization, by biased policing. Right. I want to take a moment to just a moment of silence for for Ahmad. Uh, that was, you know, murdered by just running, right? That's the context, right? That's what we're mourning today. Today's a tough day. So thank y'all for like joining us today. But again, that biased policing, um, there's police out in the in the community everywhere, right? You don't have to have a Blue Lives Matter um, uniform, right? Like we also have seen the Zimmermans in our community, right? 
So again, incarceration, deportation, all of that criminalization has been through racially driven policing. We also know that white people do zero time most of the time for a DUI, for example, yet I'm still being deported right now for a DUI. As a community member who's been hurt by prisons and deportations, I recognize that my liberation is tied to every single person who was criminalized and disposed of in any kind of cage. And I know that we're facing this like sort of like double punishment, right? So another thing about criminalization is the right wing. The right wing has spent a lot of resources and power in demonizing our communities through media, through legislation like I spoke of, right, and so forth. But the messaging infrastructure has made it really easy, has made it really easy for them, for us in general, our communities to throw people away and forget about people that are in cages, right? And they're in cages for periods of time that are really long, right? Some without even going to court, like in our jails, right? Um, in immigration system, you're sitting there idle without going to court, no due process, and we know that the courts are not, uh, you know, just at all as well. But our bodies are literally here illegalized, right, by the U.S., the people who have power to define that. So again, when talking about zero tolerance, I think about SB 1070, right? We just hit the anniversary. Uh, we just marked 10 years of the zero of this really racist show me your papers law, right? That's where elected 10 years ago actually signed in, right? Uh, a strict anti-legal immigration measure that was passed actually with the support of Alec. Uh, I just wanted to mention Alec really quick because actually they came through um, through my mind again, Alec is, is actually a legislative volunteer membership organization that really works to limit government, free markets, and federalism, right? They were behind SB 1070. They actually helped other people implement policies like that in their, in their spaces, right? And also they're the ones helping this, this nationwide campaign to open up the state. So just thought I'd share that because abolition and beyond to me means also getting rid of these harmful institutions right that are literally creating pathways of destruction right for profit like we shared like Yvette just spoke about so SB 1070 for folks that don't know really quickly was a federal law that would have required people to show documentation every time they wanted to and actually gave permission to police to be able to determine citizenship right it actually meant it actually made it a federal misdemeanor and a state misdemeanor for you to be here illegal so now this brings me back to like the harmful narr narratives too right that in this moment when we're asking to release folks a lot of people fall into this whole you know nonviolent or violent and again those harmful labels like illegal and predators right that fear that it instills that's what has allowed us to to keep you know suffering in the hands of racism and xenophobia so I just want to be really, we have some uh, resources around uh, messaging as well that we'll be sharing with y'all, but it's not helping any of us, right? When labels that don't recognize our common humanity are used, right, to divide us versus bad immigrant, for example. So we must remind each other that communities deserve dignity, restoration, and repair, not further criminalization. So I don't know if the slide is up, I can't see right now, but we have, I wanted to give a little context of the 96 immigration laws. And those were, again, just a set of, of policy that was put in place that allow, there was already a set of, of laws for, for, for convictions, right, for crimes. But then in 96, with some of the laws mentioned here in the slide, they were able to kind of just store it and break them apart and then use them for immigration purposes again, right? So not only people were going through the criminal system, but then we had to go through this criminalized migration system. And, and what we can do is actually dismantle the 96 immigration criminalization laws, right? So I encourage y'all to read more about this. We'll be sharing it. Uh, what we need is to pass laws that build communities that are healthy and thriving instead of ones torn apart by criminalization. So pass getting rid of cages, right? Like there's still uh, policy infrastructures that are criminalizing us. So to secure the full human rights of all members of our communities, we need a, a new way forward. So as an abolitionist, the goal is to demystify our current immigration system and present a political history of how the ideology of exclusion and expulsion shapes immigration policies. 
this history is really important for us to talk about. But again, understanding that that it's those intersections, right, that we've been able to literally criminalize bodies just by being here. And right now with this pandemic, we're going to be seeing more environmental refugees, right? And what are we going to do? We're just going to welcome them with mass incarceration. And that's, that's why we need, to, we need to talk about abolition today. Thank you so much, Alejandra. And I also wanted to stress the importance of 90, of 1996, not only for crime, not only for sort of like crim migration, but to also talk about how that's also the moment where we see the dismantlement of social welfare, social welfare programs, right? And it's also the time where we see, right, the federal government really getting rid of those social programs that would allow and that would facilitate a better quality of life for people, right? And so those two go hand in hand. Not only are crimes that folks um, that migrants can get charged for becomes the list becomes longer and longer and longer. It's also the same time where we begin to see the restriction of um, social welfare. So right now we're going to sort of shift a little bit. And I wanted to pose a question to Tierra, particularly around around uh, bail. So according to the Prison Policy Institute, about 76% of people that are held in jails have actually not been convicted of any crime. And I was wondering if you would uh, discuss the importance of eliminating um, cash bail and um, as one of the pillars of the police state. And if you can talk a little bit about, about that. Sure, thank you. So actually, before I respond to that, that question, which is excellent, I wanted to make sure that I come back to what Ale said about the most impacted communities needing to be centered in these conversations. And that's specifically abolitionist and thought and principle, because really what we're trying to do here is not recreate the same systems of oppression, right? And I think it's really important that when I do talk about this, I always should lead, and I, I had meant to in my intro to say that I'm not a directly impacted person. I'm an advocate, but I'm not a directly impacted person. And it's important that as, as allies in this fight, that we are not the leaders of this fight, right? That we strengthen and support each other in that way. So getting into actually responding to the question about pretrial detention and bail, um, which I think is a very, you know, hot topic, right? But um, what I think is pretty funny, I like to lead with the fact that, you know, Law & Order, the 20-year the TV show has, I think, done incredible damage to a lot of people's perceptions of what bail is in this country. Because often in those little episodes, right, it's maybe just a minute or two minutes of dialogue around, you know, the bad guy's been caught and, you know, they have a conversation about what bail is. And the idea is, oh, when they are charged with really egregious things, the bail should be higher, right? And a lot of people have this perception that bail is supposed to be about keeping bad people off the streets. That is not what bail and bond exists for, right? It is literally in existence to ensure that people show up to their court dates. And the idea is that it is unnecessarily penalizing the poor, right? Because I, I, I like to use this example, Harvey Weinstein, while he has been convicted, he was free until the day he was convicted of a crime. He 
had implemented great harm, had many people that had accusations against him, but he walked around free because he had the money to pay bail, right? And so really this, this concept that people have that it's like, oh, well, you're just letting all the bad people out. First of all, they have been accused of a crime. They have not been convicted of a crime. It doesn't mean that people have completely spotless records, but that's irrelevant to the fact if they had the money, they would be free right now. Most people sitting in Pima County Jail, so 70% of the people, so mirroring um, the statistic, 70% of people sitting in Pima County Jail right now are only there because they cannot pay bail. That should be outrageous. That's outrageous. It's a policy that disproportionately impacts brown, black, and indigenous people. And the reality is we know what the research says. When you are caught up in that system and you're just sitting in jail, you're more likely to take a plea bargain, a bad plea bargain, right? And you're more likely to have massive disruptions in your life, even if you're innocent. You will likely lose your job because you're incarcerated. You can easily lose custody of your children. You can lose your apartment and your lease because of disruptions with work and not having a paycheck, right? So there is a long domino effect um, caught up with pretrial detention that is in the favor of prosecutors. And so why do community bail funds exist? Most people, when we bail them out, they're like, well, how much is the fee? We don't do it for a fee. And that's also the obscene, I think, corrupt aspect of the for-profit bond and bail industry is that they are making profit off of posting bail for people that haven't necessarily been convicted of a crime. Lots of other cities and counties actually take portions of people's bail money, regardless of whether they're convicted of the crime or not. We are lucky, I will say, in Pima County that you get your full, you, you get your full bail back, your cash bail um, back at the end of your case, as long as you make your court dates. What research has shown is that most people show up to court if they just get text reminders. Um, most people don't show up to court because they don't have transportation, just like very small logistics, right, that are preventing people from showing up to their court date. And yet there's entire narratives around why they're bad, why they deserve to sit in jail for months on end for a crime that they're accused of, right? Why cash bail is important or the elimination of it is about creating equity. However, I think the really key thing that I like to emphasize is too many people, especially given that bail, I think it's a very quote hot issue, especially because of the fact that it's about, I think, tacit criminalization of poverty, right? And that it's really clearly unfair policy that as long as you have money, you can be free. So people love to support that idea because they're like, oh, well, that's, that's something we should do. However, the reality is that is not wholly the end all and be all of abolition. It is a tactic. It's something that we do to disrupt the system. We are not trying to say that eliminating cash bail is the answer. And that was previously brought up is that many county, city, and state governments are trying to replace cash bail with algorithms, which are racist, classist, 
but this idea that a computer that has data that is created by people and analyzed by people can predict who's going to be a flight risk. And if you in that system are considered a flight risk, you don't get bail, you just sit in jail um, because a, a computer says that. So that is something that I think we are fighting very adamantly against within the movement because again, messaging is everything I think with our work. When we're talking about vocalizing abolition, we have to be very, very careful with what it is that we're saying. Because now the message is out there, cash bail is bad. Now people are like, oh, let's make it fair. That's not what we're trying to do. People need to be free. We're not trying to make the system fair. We're trying to get people free. And that is, I think, a real challenge to our work. But I think to kind of like land this plane and this, this particular narrative, what I will say also about the, the advent of pretrial detention is that there is nothing more beautiful than going down to the jail and posting a few hundred dollars and knowing that someone is literally getting another chance. We know folks that were facing serious felony time for silly things like, you know, uh, a guy relapsed for the first time in a decade right? And he was facing eight years because of mandatory minimums in the state of Arizona, right? And because we were able to bail him out and he was in a better bargaining position, he got probation. This is what we're talking about. This is, these are the frightening realities of the criminal punishment system and how these cards are stacked against folks so that they're, get, they're given more serious time. We know that as African-Americans, I'm, I, am, I am part of the four or five percent of of black folks in Arizona, but we know that black people are getting three times the sentences in this state. And a huge piece of that is fueled by pre-trial de pre detention, high bails that unnecessarily penalize the most marginalized folks. So there is no magic bullet in the creation of abolition. And as I said, paying bail and, and not doing it for profit, right? So we fundraise through community. So it's you all, right? That give us a hundred dollars and we pay it forward. And the beautiful thing about bail is if, as long as folks are able to complete their court dates and show up, we get the money back and we can pay it forward. So it's a beautiful process of reciprocity. But what we don't want is this to become automated. We don't want it to be co-opted by the state. We don't want to become a system. We're not trying to be a bloated nonprofit that exists for the next 20 years. Our job is be out of a job. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much, Tierra. There was so many amazing gems and thank you for taking the time to break it down because I think there are a lot of misconceptions around sort of bail and thank you so much for taking this time. So right now we're going to take a sort of a stretching break, a mindful sort of exercise moment. I wanted to, before we get started with the program, I wanted to just spend a couple of minutes sort of talking a little bit about why we're here and how, you know, like how did this whole virtual teaching come about? And so I mentioned the Coalition for the Arizona Three in my introduction. And the reason that we were able to, we formed originally as a coalition was because we wanted to address 
the the criminalization that was occurring a year of uh, a year ago at the hands of the University of Arizona to three amazing three amazing students, two women of color and one graduate student that were speaking out. They were speaking out and literally put their bodies on the line to get ice off of campus. And so that's why I'm wearing the shirt. And I just wanted to honor the fact that that abolitionist act, that everyday act, which propelled a series of events to happen and that and that essentially riled a bunch of us on campus to come together as a coalition. And it was there that we began to have conversations around abolition. And it was there that we began to think about, well, we want to have a reading group. We want to have events that center this conversation. And so I wanted to sort of honor that, and we're going to come back to it a little later, but just to sort of talk about why why we're sort of here today and, and, and to sort of honor that space. And so I, I wanted to mention the importance of ICE and Border Patrol, and especially I think now we're going to sort of transition into what does it mean for us to talk about abolition in this current health crisis. And so I want to start off with the fact that this week we learned that the first death due to COVID-19 happened in Otay Mesa Detention Center. And so I want to I want to pose this question to our amazing speakers to address why is it important for us in this current moment to talk about abolition, right? Why is it necessary for us to have these really difficult conversations? And I'm really reminded by a talk that I listened to of Ruth Wilson Gilmore, an abolitionist scholar who cited Arundhati Roy, where she said that pandemics are a portal, a portal where you can let go of old ways and envision in, a, in another world. So I want to pose that question of what does this global pandemic mean for abolition? And, um, and if y'all can talk a little bit about that. All right, I can go first. I mean, for me, I would just really want to break down literally why we need to abolish cages right now. In this moment, I mean, we've had to abolish them before the pandemic, right? We've known this, but it's, but particularly also now. And to me, I'll focus on this particular portion. So the government doesn't work, right? The way that we've seen it doesn't work. So we've been creating spaces for targeted communities to support immigrants and their families and criminalize people through grassroots organizing and to educate and create leadership within the community. So mutual aid, which if y'all are not planning to be here tomorrow, there will be a mutual aid teaching with my comrades uh, to fund the criminalized collective. So yeah, and we just spoke, for example, right now we're on the first death at an immigration prison, right? At Otay detention, where they've been doing a lot of organizing. What they've been, organizers have been trying to prevent this from happening, right? And and again, in this, in this, in this moment too, we kind of fall into like, uh, there was some some language around like let's get folks with like nonviolent or not seriously not serious uh, illnesses or let's get folks that are older and vulnerable right but i just wanted to root us back into what systems are we talking about right what what's really happening about the criminal system in the united states is punitive and it's and it and it's based on this idea of just punishment for breaking laws right laws that again are a little bit that are racist, that are laws for black and brown indigenous people, right? And not laws for white people. Uh, so I think, I think what's really important to talk about here is that when someone is charged with a crime, 
they're really like innocent, quote unquote, until proven guilty, right? But right now we just said that people are being uh, are being punished even because they're poor and they can't pay, right? So technically we are guilty from the get-go, right? So supposedly we have a right to a government-appointed attorney. Theoretically, everyone charged with a crime has a right to a trial, right? But over 90% of criminal cases don't even go to a trial. I never went to a, cry a trial. I pled guilty all the time because I was scared and pressured by the system into pleading into taking this plea in exchange because it was going to be worse off on the other end, right? So people often accept those pleas because of the terrible conditions of pretrial detention, unaffordable bail mounts like we just heard, and prolonged pretrial court processes, right? That keeps many coming back to court for weeks, months, even years before the cases go to trial. So the civil system is the immigration system in the, in the U.S. It includes court proceedings that are not part of the criminal justice system. Most immigration violations are defined as civil offenses. We've already heard that. And detention and deportation are therefore considered administrative actions. Deportation cases are heard in immigration court, which differ from criminal courts in two ways. But this is important, right? First, there's no right to a, gov a free government-appointed attorney there. And as a result, less than 40% of people are facing deportation don't have an attorney. For those why, like lawyers like Yvette exist, right? Movement lawyers, activist lawyers. So for those in immigration detention, the situation is even worse. Only 14% of detained non-citizens have lawyers. So... So again, unlike the criminal system, which formally balances, quote unquote, right, powers between judges, defense, attorneys, prosecutor, attorney, right, and let's, there's a, there's supposedly this balance in immigration, judge, in, in immigration, the judges are not part of the, of that system, right, they're just witnesses to deportation. The judges, therefore, have to just follow the court's orders of their boss, which is like, I, the Department of Homeland Security, which basically is telling people, everybody is deportable. Right? Everybody, no matter what they did, should be mandatory detention and mandatory deportation. That's why we have the increase, increases of all these jails being full daily, right? So that's why all folks need to be released from courts uh, because courts were never just, right? Sentencing has not been just and we must abolish it all. So I'll just focus on that, trying to break that down the court system and let my comrades uh, take up some other points in this. But thank you. Very quickly speaking about why why in this moment abolition, you can't social distance in a jail or a prison. We are already seeing that the hardest hit areas in the country right now are prisons and jails. Cook County Jail, Rikers Island in New York, the COVID infection is spreading rapidly, partially because you can't socially distance, partially because as Ali already pointed out, these are already disgusting um, and unsanitary environments, but also a lot of them specifically um, in the state of Arizona, they mainly, the jails and the prisons have privatized healthcare, which I know many people would think that that is a positive. It's not in this case, right? A lot of the, the private healthcare is actually run by private prison companies. It's subsidiaries. Like CoreCivic, for example, has um, a medical healthcare company called Correct Care. These, the, the incarcerated of the state prison system anyways in Arizona um, have been in a long-term ongoing lawsuit with the Department of Corrections because of how poor the healthcare has been. And that was before a pandemic. Um, unfortunately, there is a lot of obstructionism that's happening right now on many different levels. So obviously when you're dealing with the county jail, there are certain actors that have a lot of power, right? The county attorney, Barbara Lawal, who is 
retiring. So she gives no Fs, unfortunately, about those who are sitting in the jail. Um, you have Sheriff Mark Napier, who is up for re-election, by the way, in November, who um, had the nerve to pretend like he's decarcerated the jail by hundreds of people when we know for a fact that he has only let a handful of folks out. Um, I think what is also very urgent to contextualize in this moment, especially because this is, this is about abolition in Arizona, is we, we know we're a deep red state. Um, I mean, the reality is it's actually kind of a purple state, but because of gerrymandering and other factors I won't get into, we are still very much a very conservative state. Even in, quote, liberal bastions like Pima County, there's a lot of dinos out there um, that still believe in that kind of 94 crime bill mentality that longer sentences, um, they're reformists, they are not abolitionists, they, they believe very much so in the criminal punishment system, but they like the idea of, you know, making this, the system more equitable, right? Um, and are fine with, you know, keeping the homeless and, or the houseless and the chronically ill um, in, in quasi jails, right? Like that's their, their, their solution is, oh, they can get mental health care in a jail. Um, all that to kind of like land on the fact that this is a moment where people should be mass released because jails and prisons are a public health crisis. And we are already seeing this. This has happened across the world. It's happened in other countries. It's happening now in this country. Unfortunately, there is intentional under-testing happening. Um, right now in the prison system, they've confirmed five deaths. Um, however, they've only COVID tested less than a few hundred people when we know that on the state level, there are 42,000 that are incarcerated. And we know that this is a highly contagious um, disease. We know that a, a huge portion of folks, about 11% over, over the age of 55, so they're already vulnerable because of that. We know that prisons and jails age you. Um, they, they, most folks leave incarceration with chronic illnesses. So you have a large population of chronically ill people. Um, there is not a single ventilator in the entire state system. So if someone is, is, is high risk, there's nowhere for them to go um, to get the care that they need inside the prison system. Unfortunately, uh, Governor Doug Ducey has also been very adamant about the fact that he will not let anyone out. Um, and going back to the 94 crime bill very quickly, do note that Arizona is one of only two states left in the entire country that still has truth and sentencing laws. What that did very quickly is abolish parole. There is not parole in the state of Arizona. You must serve 85% of your time regardless of, of any. So he is refusing to budge on truth and sentencing. He is refusing to budge on revocations. He's refusing to budge on even allowing some of the most vulnerable people out of the system. So this is a time more than ever that advocates have to dig deep and fight in a state where I think the apathy and white supremacy is unchecked and unabashed. Thanks to you both. I wanted to speak to the experiences that I had in the Eloy and La Palma detention centers when I was doing detained deportation defense. 
Eloy Detention Center in particular has a history of deaths in custody and suicides, uh, the last of which we know was Huichi Tran in 2018. There's also a specific history of contagious disease outbreaks in these immigration detention centers. And what's really troubling about that is that the outbreaks were of diseases that were, are, we already have a vaccine for, that we already have a cure for, and that are actually in every other place contained for that reason. So just from the headlines here, we see that the Eloy Detention Center, La Palma Detention Center, and the Florence Detention Centers have had measles, mumps, and chicken pox outbreaks in the last few years. And so it's just preposterous to think that they would ever be able to keep people safe from a virus that's even more contagious and a virus that we don't have a vaccine or cure for. And also, it's important to note how recalcitrant ICE is in releasing people, even though the a judge in the Central Court of Central District of California ruled nationwide that ICE had to consider vulnerable individuals for release. What ICE has done instead of releasing folks to loved ones is just to transfer them to different centers. That's how they're reading the order from the judge. And it's it's just important again to always interrogate why these things are actually happening. ICE and Border Patrol don't care about stopping the spread of COVID-19 and we know that because they've done things to to spread the, the virus like um, deporting a plane full of Guatemalan folks to Guatemala, the majority of whom a few weeks later tested positive for COVID-19. I think it's important to note the use of the increased normalization of the usage of quote-unquote emergency powers, like, you know, with the Center for Disease Control issued a rule allowing for Border Patrol to unilaterally, quote, ex um, do expulsions, quote-unquote, that they're, they're calling them that so that they can act like they're not deportations, but they, they literally are. They're arresting folks and then just immediately bringing back, them back to the Mexican border, to the Mexican side of the border. And this is under the guise of emergency powers and this COVID, unprecedented COVID-19 health crisis. But leaked memos show that this was an idea that Stephen Miller had prior to COVID-19. And so this was actually just the perfect excuse to implement it. And um, yeah, I think I'll just send it there. Thank you. Thank you so much, everyone. And so, you know, I, I, we started off this sort of second half of the talk talking about abolition and COVID-19. And so I think that now, you know, we're gonna have this moment where we want to talk about some of the common, common sort of questions that we get, especially as abolitionists, right? There are a series of, of questions and people always get very, very offended, very upset um, when you start to question carcerality, when you start to question criminalization. Um, as an instructor who's taught, um, who's taught work by prison abolitionists, I think one of the questions that I always get um, is, is sort of this question of, oh, well, what's, so you want to let everyone, like, what about the quote unquote, you know, and so, and so I wanted to take this time um, for us to sort of, to have these conversations so that you know as a, as an example of some of the ways that you can 
address some of these questions, right? Um, and it's also, I think, really important to think about that there are multiple ways to answer these questions, right? There are multiple ways to address these issues of these common misconceptions about abolition. And so we're going to go through a series of three questions. So the first question, and I think Ale was going to sort of um, answer these, but you know, how to talk about abolition. Does abolition mean that you just want to let everyone out of prison? There's also a question of how will we stay, how will we stay safe without prisons or police? And then we're going to talk about what are some alternatives to calling the police. So again, these are just some examples or some ways that you can utilize and to give um, folks that are in attendance here, the tools so that you can also become abolitionists, but also so that you can address these issues when you have those difficult conversations with friends and loved ones. Woohoo, so I'll start. Thank you, Gloria. Thanks, y'all. So, yeah, it's my favorite part. I've learned so much. Again, like Tiara said, right, nobody becomes an abolitionist from one day to another, right? I wasn't an abolitionist when I was locked up for two years, right? It took, it took me gradually to really understand um, what, what was happening and, and what my role is in our liberation. So, so, yeah, so does being an abolitionist mean you want to let everyone out of prison? <laughs> yeah. I mean, at its core, abolition isn't only about opening up the doors to the cage, but it's also about creating, creating new models for living, right? So imagining the future based on our abolition means totally shifting how we think about living with each other. So we must create stable communities as we're trying to burn prisons down, right? So folks can come home, right? I, I, I've been saying lately, like, we're going to be as ready as we can. Just give us our people back, right? So that, that's the sentiment of abolition. Like, so instead of thinking about what we want to destroy, sometimes when we're new to abolition, it may be helpful to think about what we must build to abolish prisons, right? To abolish ICE. Our vision needs to include everyone affected by the prison industrial complex, right? Not only the first time drug offenders or the wrongly convicted, but everyone. So we need to be able to create environments for ourselves that provide the basic necessities. We heard a lot about these basic necessities already right, in order for us to live and feel safe, right, uh, with, ha with housing, with food, with medical care, with all the things that we really need, right? So I think um, it's, it's about starting to build those kinds of environments that are, gonna, that, are, that are starting to create the new system so we don't need to rely on the old, right, or what we're trying to dismantle. And I know that one thing, too, that I just want to give context to is I know we can't get rid of prisons all of a sudden, right, which I really want, wish we could, uh, but we have to make first dramatic changes, right, in the system, in ourselves, interpersonally, uh, but mostly of like, you know, the systems that led people into prison. So we need to think about what kinds of things we could put in place to support those folks. If we're creating a better environment, but we still can't keep people from harming each other, right, in all the ways that, that, that harm and hurt happens, we do need to have some things in place that would help everyone involved in the and patching up those differences, right? And be able to like talk about harm and ask who's at the table instead of having to use court systems and police and judges, right? Like who's been harmed should be at the table and what do we need so that harm doesn't happen again, right? But our current systems of policing and surveillance and courts and detentions and family services, probation, parole, they don't get the job done. Abolition means creating long-term alternatives to the ways that we earn our livings, that we live together, that we resolve conflict. 
right? We're working for a future that's based on abolition. That means that we're building something real today that can be, that can be the foundation for how we want to live moving forward. It means figuring out ways for all of us to believe the things that really could be different and that each of us can include that vision in our day-to-day -day lives. I'm gonna speak a little bit about the second question, but I wanna show y'all a video. So Elena, go ahead and cue up the little video. The question of how will we stay safe without prisons or police? So I can just say that one way about answering this question is just to understand all the ways that we already keep each other safe, right? A lot of us already are doing that. While the media and the politicians focus on crime and Ill illegals and you know, all of this, uh, a major problem in the US, the fact is that, you know, that that's not what we experience most of us, right? We know, um, I don't wanna get into the fact that crime rates have dropped and all that shit, but being tough on crime law making has never, has never been beneficial to us. So for example, most most people that are that are in that are injured right that all that happen to be in this in the in, in a violent situation they're actually like they know each other right they actually know each other we we want to talk about the economic crimes right like theft that are that are linked to poverty right that are li linked to the fact that we don't have jobs and so forth so just wanted to bring people back around like how do we keep our safe and what are the needs that we need the government creates poverty right they create unsheltered people they create other crimes right, that we're going to criminalize, like loitering, panhandling, right, anything can get you into a jail or a prison. So anyways, I, I'm going to let, let uh, Poder in Action say it better. Um, there's hope. We have a local community organization in Phoenix that's fighting back divestment from cops to actually put that money into a, the needs that we have. So they're going to say it better. Let's, let's play the video made by some of my homies um, in Phoenix, Arizona. And just check out, it's gonna be translated in English and Spanish. Just really check out the facts that they're talking about. Really hear the most impacted people sharing what is it that they need. Thank you. People are losing their jobs. Um, people are losing their source of income. Um, people aren't able to pay their rent. People aren't able to pay their bills. La comunidad lo que más tiene es temor, temor de enfermarse y no tener seguro médico, verdad? Porque es muy caro. One of the biggest struggles for me during this pandemic was having to take my daughter out of school. Her teachers having to also cancel all her high school programs. Investing in police in this moment like isn't the answer because it's not what anybody needs and it's not what anybody needs ever really. Who needs to be criminalized? Who needs to be brutalized and then thrown in jail? Who needs to live with that trauma? Nobody. The police don't really solve any of our problems. They don't provide health care. They're not gonna, you know, give my brother back his job. In this moment and in the future, police is not the answer to the problems that, that we're facing. Now more than ever, it's important um, to dream and to think and to brainstorm about what the future of Phoenix could really hold, right? A healthy uh, Phoenix of the future would be a place where everyone has access to the resources that they and their family needs to be happy and healthy. Necesitamos más clínicas para personas que, que no tienen un seguro médico. A lot of green spaces, parks, places for kids to play, jobs and opportunities for people to learn. Folks need to hear that it is our right to participate in building a healthy community. Like right now, there's going to be $700 million that's going to be funded to police again when that money can be used to right now support the families who are working during this pandemic, to support the families who are really struggling we know a lot of those families are black, brown, working class, and they're undocumented. 
how come y'all care about people when they're paying into the general fund, when they're funding the city um, with every purchase that they make at the grocery store, right? But you don't care about them when it comes to a global pandemic. Para mí pienso que la esto es importante que la comunidad escuche y vea lo que estamos uh, haciendo o lo que estamos hablando, porque primero que nada para que sepan que no están solos. In order for us to create this future healthy Phoenix, they need to listen to our needs and invest in the things that are going to solve the problems that our families are facing. Because at the end of the day, we'll remember who, who stood up for us, right? We'll, we'll remember who was there for us, we'll remember who kept us in mind, and we'll remember that when we vote. We'll remember that when we mobilize people, because the movement isn't shrinking, it's not dwindling, it's only growing stronger. Our follow up with in action, they're in Phoenix, west side of Phoenix. That's beautiful. I hope that that, that was more helpful than I would have been. <laughs> Let's pass it on. Yeah, thank you so much, Ale. And so if any, I'll, I'll open it up to any of the panelists, if there's anything that you want to add to this, um, anything that you want to sort of share regarding, you know, how you might answer some of these questions or the, you know, some of the, um, some of the comments that, or some of your responses when these sort of issues or when these comments sort of arise, like how you deal with them. The question, I think, the, the sort of the last question about how do you deal with, you know, how do we not call into the police? But I also think it's important to remember here, not only how do we not engage with law enforcement and bring them into dangerous situations, but also how do we not act like them? How do we not act like law enforcement and police one another in our everyday sort of interactions, right? Because I think, you know, Tierra pointed amazingly to the fact that we have all this propaganda coming to us all the time. We can turn on the TV and watch Law and Order. You can, you know, you can uh, watch Forensic Files. You can go on Netflix. You can go on Hulu. You can, you know, you are sort of consumed by it, right? We have books where you see law enforcement as a career, right? But it's very, it, so those moments of we become ingrained to, to, uh, to manifest this and to act as law enforcement, you know, to act as police, right? To police one another, to police one another's actions, but also our gender expression. And so, and so I wanted to see if maybe y'all can talk a little bit about those moments, uh, those really tense moments of, you know, what do you do when you have some of these things that happen or some people start to question you and, and also talking about what are some alternatives to calling the police or anyone, yeah, <laughs> Yvette, Tierra, whoever wants to jump in. <laughs> whoever wants to jump in. Yeah, you, go, you go first, Yvette. Okay, thanks. So you were already alluding to this, Gloria, but the, in order to really have alternatives to calling the police, you need to be able to, you need to develop strong relationships with your neighbors so that you actually feel empowered if you hear a dispute or if you hear glass breaking, you feel, you feel comfortable enough to go and to see what's up. So many of police shootings have happened because somebody called the police to do a welfare check or a mental health check that resulted in somebody dying. And so the, the alternative to that would be to 
not be scared of not be so scared of your neighbor to to call to prefer calling the police over going and helping and I'll admit myself that this is an area that I really need to work in especially since moving to Arizona I've become really I've just kind of drawn into myself more and, and become more jaded about building neighborly relationships especially because of the white people in the state but I'm trying and <laughs> yeah I just yeah and I think it's really important in particular to separate mental health care and medical care from the police um, like right now if somebody's having a mental health crisis really the only thing you can do is call 911 and unless you're trained in de-escalation tactics which most of us aren't and and that's unacceptable and uh, when I was in college, I, I saw the effect that some that like decoupling criminalization or getting somebody in trouble with allowing them to seek care actually does help in that case students. And when I was an undergrad, my college had a policy where if an underage student was drunk and so drunk that they needed to go to the hospital, then they could they could call whoever and be sent to the on campus the city hospital the campus police and the dean of students wouldn't be wouldn't be involved and i did see the difference between you know like people caring for somebody who probably could have benefited from medical care because of the fears of getting in trouble yeah it's it's an it's an ongoing thing that's why abolitionists abolitionism is like an ongoing practice like I said I I don't know my neighbors at all right now <laughs> and here I am telling you to develop strong relationships with your neighbors so I'm working on it um, all the time Tiara you want to share I think that, that that's like the heart of abolition, right? Is that, I, Ali talked about this earlier, we're always trying to change systems, but you can't change the systems if you are still a product of internalized white supremacy and criminal punishment paradigm. You have to dismantle that stuff within yourself actively all the time. I know for me last year, I got robbed. I mean, not literally robbed. But, you know, someone broke into my car, stole, like, and it was like right after I came back for a trip and I had hidden some stuff in the trunk. They got into the trunk. They stole my suitcase with all my stuff. They, they also tore down one of my backyard um, gates and I didn't hear any of it until the morning. And, you know, my initial instinct was to call the police, not because I even believed it, right? It was just that that's your instinct that this culture instills in you when something happens and I had to walk it back. And I was like, that's not going to change anything. That's irrelevant. That's not going to rep repair the harm. And so I walked away from that. Obviously there's no like perfect solution right because I, I I completely agree about developing relationships with your neighbors unfortunately some of my neighbors are also like scary white people with confederate flag bumper stickers so like I'm not trying to build community with them right because we don't have same the same values but it doesn't mean that we aren't striving to create the world that we can tear down the conditions that create that divide right and I think that that's, that's kind of the important piece, because as we said, abolition in many ways is 
future oriented. We haven't built all the conditions to allow, I think, that larger sense of community yet. We're still living in it. You know, I had neighbors, I had some other neighbors actually that were having explosive fights. You know, it was not um, domestic violence, but I mean, it was domestic violence in a different way, right? Like not in the traditional concept, but there was very like, fighting and I was really torn because I was like I'm not calling the police and I know that especially because there were children living there that if you involve any sort of state entity that is a great way to break up a family right and that's not actually giving them the things that they obviously need they need resources um, they need probably counseling right all these other things and you know I was literally actively talking to other folks trying to figure out how to how do I intervene without being a nosy Parker and and helping connect these people to the things right so there's no there's no like perfect answer and I think unfortunately that's what people want right that's what criminal punishment paradigm fosters in this culture is this idea that it's this or that right like that book like it's like oh don't eat a burger or eat like a turkey burger right like that is not what we're trying to do that abolition is not like oh we get we replace cops with social workers i mean that on a certain level sounds good right but you also have to question the idea of a, of the system coming in as a whole i think as the longer i do this work um, the more committed I am to communities and networks that have nothing to do with the state. <laughs> That's like the truth. Because no matter how soft things are, right? Like uh, I had talked about, you know, the mental health cops, you know, Tucson loves that stuff. They have a whole MacArthur grant and they're like, oh, we've got mental health cops and they're trained to like deescalate. But you know what? They're still cops, right? They're still affiliated with the system. They're still trained to kill people. They still carry guns, right? All of those issues still persist. And people think that the issue is making cops softer or friendlier, or they think the idea is um, bringing cops to schools, right? To stop school shootings, right? All of these things, we always have this idea that pouring money into these systems is somehow going to rectify the fact that we are so deeply under-resourced as a community. And I think just to quickly wrap it up, because I know we have many other things to, to kind of land. The one thing I like to emphasize when I do talk about abolition in Arizona specifically is the third highest line item in this budget of our state is Department of Corrections. That does not include the sheriff's departments. That does not include the cops. That does not include the county jails, right? The third highest line item is prisons, right? That only incarcerates 42,000 people, which is a lot of people per capita for Arizona. But the point is 42,000 people, we're, we're, we're tying up over a billion dollars to keep them in a cage. In the meantime, Arizona has some of the worst pay for teachers in the country, has some of the lowest, right, academics in the country, lowest uh, standards. Right. And so we're, we're saying, why is, you know, Pima County, and this is one more statistic to throw out. Most people don't know this. Pima County is the fifth county of its size, poorest county of its size in the country. This is a poor ass county. Right. And yet we still have hundreds of millions of dollars to pour into cops. And I think that this is very much so a a a foundation for where we are in this conversation about covid because we understand that the virus is not just about infection the virus i'm sorry to say it capitalism but we can talk about that later <laughs>
Thank you so much, everybody, for taking on that question um, and for sort of sharing anecdotes. And I think, I think part of abolition is sort of wrestling with some of these moments of of discomfort, right? And I think it's awesome that y'all were able to also show some of that vulnerability because it is, right? Abolition is not a short-term goal, but it's a long-term goal, right? It's something that you work towards. It's something that you envision every day and you work towards every day. And so sometimes it can be easy and sometimes it can be difficult. Um, I know that there's, I did see some things pop up in the chat. The amazing and brilliant Alicia Vasquez um, pointed out the way in which men, the way in which um, sort of health institutions are also are also very much rooted in carceral systems for disa for disabled folks, right? It's also important to remember, you know, when we do talk about alternatives to law enforcement, right? And and the speakers mentioned bringing in the state is that healthcare workers and also folks with disabilities are also in a vulnerable situation, right? So how can, so it's really interesting for us to think about the links between carceral systems and the medical industrial complex, right? And, you know, and there's so much happening in, there's so much rich discussion happening in the chat as folks are listening to us that I wanted to sort of draw our attention to some of those connections that were made by folks that are listening. Now, you know, I think that this really leads us to the question of, you know, um, and the sort of title of the, of the two-day sort of talks, right, Abolition Beyond Detention. Um, I really wanted to sort of pose this question to the speakers, right, about, you know, what do we, in this current moment, um, what about abolition beyond this moment, right? Beyond COVID-19, beyond, you know, like 2020, and maybe also looking towards the future. I think, you know, there were, we, there were little nuggets that folks sort of said along the way of what you envision for an, uh, an abolitionist future and, and also how can we think about beyond just attention? How can we include other aspects of life into this conversation. And so, you know, I wanted to sort of pose that question. And I think, you know, I want to answer it. Also, I also want to answer this question because I think, you know, it's important when we were sort of organizing or thinking about this event. I think it's really important to have these very rich conversations, but to also think about, you know, and, and I think this is a beautiful segue to sort of plug our event for tomorrow is that here we're talking about dismantling police and carceral systems. And so as we're doing that, we also have to think about, so, okay, what are we going to do, right? Um, as sort of Angela Davis reminds us that uh, that prison abolition is about a better quality of life for everyone across the board right? What is that? What does a better quality of life mean to people, right? Tierra pointed out education and, uh, you know, we pointed out to sort of uh, healthcare. And so I wanted to see what folks want to share about abolition beyond detention. And so I think for me, I want to, I want us to think about, you know, abolition beyond the border wall, right? Beyond the nation state. And as 
the defend the criminalized collective reminds us, right, to abolish the nation state is to also think about sort of these other creations, right? I mean, so I want to sort of let our amazing panelists try to answer a little bit about, you know, what about abolition beyond detention and beyond this moment? I can go first. I think it's important to take opportunity uh, to take advantage of this COVID-19 moment where I feel like liberals and moderates have started saying free them all. Just to kind of, now that this idea has been planted in their head as maybe not that wild, I think we need to take this moment to continue educating them about how the vulnerability of folks in these institutions has always been really serious and the healthcare, you know, like Tira said, most folks who leave prison leave with some type of chronic condition because of a mix of the subpar healthcare, high stress environments that prison creates. And I think we just need to kind of use this moment to uncover the systemic issues that have already been there that we know that we as abolitionists have already known are there, but just kind of keep pushing this conversation into bigger discussions. And I think it's also become very clear as we've been talking about in the second portion of the webinar that we need to create, we need to be actively creating alternatives, alternative structures in place for the problems that prison is supposedly supposed to help. You know, I think it's really clear that we need Medicare for all now. I think it's also really important to set up systems of support, as we've been saying, um, because we're fighting to get folks out, but we need to also be building already, you know, so building and supporting already existing networks of support for folks once they're out. Where are they going to live? Will they be safe? Where can they thrive? And T Transcorp Pueblo in Phoenix actually does a really good job of this, of helping folks who are recently released from immigration detention. So you all should follow their work. I think something that has been really on my mind, I think about this this murderer of um, Ahmad Arbery. And I think that, again, what, what I, I mentioned earlier, messaging is everything in movement work. And I think the messaging has been terrible about the tragedy that befell him. Because, you know, I've been seeing this quote floating around from Kapala Harris that is like exercising um, while black is not a crime or it should like you shouldn't like you you should be allowed to exercise while black that is not like the message you should get from this tragedy right relating it to COVID-19 black people are disproportionately dying from it right why is that because of systemic inequality. The same thing that this young man who was jogging was murdered, right, for. Being Black is something that you die for in America. And so COVID-19 is a, is a moment that's, that's representing 
our reality, which is that there is no social safety net. There hasn't been one for a very long time. It's exposing the internal racism of the medical care system. The same things that we're talking about in the carceral state, whether it's in immigrant detention or in, in uh, state-run prisons, right, or the federal prisons, it's the same systems of inequality over and over and over again, right? So we're talking about the incarcerated and the detained not having resources. We don't have resources either. We don't have hospitals. We don't have money to pay our, our bills, right? Most people don't have any safety net happening right now. All Doug Ducey did with evictions, right, was stay them. He, he delayed them. He's not giving people rent support. He's not giving people access to testing. Arizona, again, has the, one of the lowest levels of testing in the country, right? So with that said, but they're going to reopen the state because why? What they're saying is the, the marginalized communities specifically black people, but also indigenous people. Look at what's happening at the Navajo Nation. Despite the fact that we have huge spikes and disproportionate communities that are being impacted by this virus, they're saying we are expendable. The same way that they say we're expendable by incarcerating us, detaining us, removing us from society, stripping us of our rights. It's the same thing. So what I would really say, and what I'm hoping from this COVID-19 moment, while it's been incredibly, I think, discouraging for movement folks um, and people who are advocating in this moment, what, what we're hoping is that the general population is now understanding the lie. <laughs> They're understanding what it is. And so let this moment radicalize you. Let this moment radicalize you because it's not just, that's why we're saying abolition is not just about prisons. It's not just about jails. It's not just about cages. It's about our literal cage of our lives. It's about the literal lack of resources for everyone. And these are the things that they continually criminalize because it's about control. Thank you for those gems. I think you said it right on the money, um, Tiara, and that's in this moment in time, we need to organize, right? Like right now we just heard that in, uh, in California, Otay Detention Center, and that could have been prevented, right? So I think, again, if we had more masses and more people, if organizing was part of our life, right? Like, I mean, we think of even going to school, like I didn't learn about organizing or none of this, right? Systemic oppression through schools, definitely not, right? So just even normalizing this kind of, of work, right? Organizing, organizing and just creating, right? Because that's how we're gonna come. People, when, when people become vessels of, of resources in political education, when we're organizing, and we're providing these, these um, resources, right? So I think you hit it right there. Uh, I think the only thing I wanna add around like what abolition and beyond is, I mean, I think I wanna really just share about, uh, around like a, a, a new, kind of model of organizing that I've been I've been very curious about and kind of implementing in my own deportation cases um, is um, participatory defense. And it's just, you know, just a little bit of jargon, but basically it's really giving, it, participatory defense is the most accessible way directly affected communities and impacted communities can challenge mass incarceration. 
and have a movement that's building dynamic, you know, dynamic results and, and really centering the efforts of family members to really actually deviate us from the result of like over sentencing, right? For example, if we're able to participate in court watch, if we're able to, to pressure these judges to, to watch what the prosecutor is doing, to literally be a part of that conversation and, and make sure that that they're not just easily taking our people away, right? Courts are, are courts, like we said, are unjust. They're they're racist. They're uncomfortable. A lot of us can't don't even make it to court, right? Um, I think it's just important to understand that there are some uh, abolition is also about these models that we're creating, which are again participatory defense models, right? Which is what we're hoping to to expand on. The criminal justice folks. I'm an, I'm a member of the National Council for Formerly Incarcerated Women and Girls, and you know they do a lot of this participatory defense. And the reason why immigrant folks or folks in the deportation system haven't really you know, been using that word is because it's very, very limited, right? When we go into the court system, is there's no discretion. We've already talked about this, right? There's no due process. So it's really, really tough to fight. But I also know that I got my squad behind me, right? Last time I came home from being incarcerated and I was uh, detained at Eloy Detention Center, I only came home because communities nationwide organized and pressured that immigration judge to release me. They didn't want that attention, right? But I only came home because of that. They would have kept me in there. That's participatory defense, right? That's where we all participated in that, and we made sure that we, you know, we brought our loved ones back. I think that's it for me. Again, uh, um, abolition and beyond means, you know, getting rid of, you know, folks like Alec, right? Um, uh, and really, really just releasing shame and stigma, right? Because we, we, yeah, we are not here to blame. We are not here to shame. Um, so just, yeah, thank you for listening and joining us today. And so here I'm gonna, um, we're gonna turn to one of our also speakers, which is Mariel Bustamante, one of the Arizona Three. And again, right, the reason that conversations around abolition at the U of A began to happen is because of the really fierce in-your-face acts that they did. They literally put their bodies on the line and got border patrol off of campus, right? They saw them in a classroom, asked them why they were there, got them out, and then were criminalized, right? Were criminalized by the university uh, because, and you know, and then we find out that they were there because of the criminal justice club, right? And so again, we also need to be reminded of the ways that the university is also implicit in, in the caging of individuals, right? How the university, you know, UAPD, law enforcement, how all of these entities are, are tied and the way in which they were inextricably connected all to go after these three particular people. So I wanna turn to Mariel and I wanted to have her talk a little bit about some of the criminalization that her as, as well as the other folks faced, but I wanted her to also talk a little bit about what happened after, right? What things were, were placed at the University of Arizona after this action um, and sort of what came about. And so, you know, I wanted to see if she can um, come on here and sort of share some thoughts um, and, you know, and, and share some quotes of her other sort of fellow comrade, uh, Denise, as well. 
Hey, thank you, everyone. Well, first of all, I just wanted to say that the U of A has always kind of been connected, but it recently came to light, and I put this in the chat, that one of the Arizona Board of Regents uh, is, in fact, part of Core Civic. She's also a board member. They are the people who make and are the reason why prisons and detention centers exist. Um, so she runs the detention centers in Arizona, and I think that is amazing, considering the fact that Denise and I both had an, a meeting with President Robbins, and we asked him to his face, you know, does the university have any ties, you know, and he, like, was persistent, like, the University of Arizona does not have any ties with Border Patrol agents at all, or Border Patrol as, like, a union or whatever, and that was just a lie. And there's lots of proof of that, so I think that's pretty great. But anyway, during our criminalization, the University of Arizona was already preparing to how to, how to avoid something like this from happening again, you know, uh, protesting on campus, specifically uh, against Border Patrol and ICE. Uh, one being the campus conversations. If you guys aren't familiar with campus conversations, it was described as the university president as uh, discussions of how our free speech rights can be modeled on a college campus. And he also called it a marketplace of ideas, uh, saying that there was no better place to discuss these emotional and sensitive issues, um, which is pretty bizarre that he would, you know, kind of summarize like the danger of border patrol agents on campus as like a sensitive issue yeah these campus conversations were really like a slap in the face to not just me and denise and the rest of the arizona three um you know supporters but also to the undocumented students who attend the university of arizona because eventually these campus conversations what they were designed to do initially was to talk about you know should Border Patrol be on campus? Like, should policing uh, be on campus, et cetera? It turned into a conversation about free speech. And that was the slap in the face because this was an issue of Border Patrol presence on campus. And that was a way that the university tried to like steer away from that conversation mm -hmm. um, and just kind of uh, pretend that the Border Patrol uh, presence on campus didn't exist. And that was really, really jarring. And also, Denise and I were talking earlier, and we were just kind of reminiscing and reflecting, which is really hard to do because it's just so traumatizing. But we were talking about how these campus conversations were started uh, before our charges were dropped. So we weren't able to talk at these campus conversations because anything we said or did uh, would be used against us in our trial. So like Denise said to me earlier, and I quote, it was silencing us. So we were just silenced, truly. Um, and then so something else that came out of our criminalization was there was a task force that was started by President Robbins and a lot of the higher-ups. And honestly, like Denise, uh, I'm gonna quote Denise again, it contributed to the economy of University of Arizona. And this task force ended up promoting already existing staff to be on this task force, which ended up uh, overseeing campus clubs. Um, there was better practices for campus policing. And mind you, people are getting paid to do these things. So uh, to kind of have discussions
communications with Border Patrol about their presence on campus and ongoing communication with Border Patrol, which is bizarre because that just reinforces the fact that the University of Arizona does have a relationship with Border Patrol and for them to deny it at all is lying. Um, and also another uh, position that was created was to amend the structure and protocols for ongoing responses to campus climate issues. So that just kind of reinforces the idea that we were a problem and we were a nuisance to the University of Arizona and their stakeholders, which is a word that President Robbins used often, uh, stakeholders to talk about the people who have a say in the University of Arizona, the people who give money. So basically what came out of the Arizona Three was student surveillance, silencing, and protecting cops. No. Gloria, go ahead. <laughs> Thank you so much, um, Marielle, for your amazing insight, your critical analysis, and for showing us, you know, how the university um, is still criminalizing, you know, how they've built these structures in place to criminalize students who do speak out. Sort of talk a little bit about some of the calls to action and her amazing, you know, like, because she sort of laid it out for us, right? Like, this is what the university did um, and maybe, you know, lead us into our sort of our final, final um, uh, event or our final sort of moment in this teaching. Cool, yeah, so I just wanted to say again, in terms of my charges and Denise's charges, after they were dropped, we were kind of stuck and feeling lost. Um, we didn't accomplish what we had hoped, despite our criminalization, which is get CBP and ICE off of campus. Um, instead, they were left without consequences from the University of Arizona, and they are still able to roam the campus freely. Our undocumented students are still at risk. There are still fucked up institutions, and nothing has truly changed. So now what? Um, I pose the question to you all, what are you going to do? I encourage you all, like Gloria says, to check out the abolition PDF to see what you can do to make an impact, whether it be um, for folks in Arizona calling Doug Ducey to demand the release of those detained at Eloy La Palma, or in your person, like circling around the detention center in your car to demand the release, like the cool action that happened a few weeks ago. Or if you are able to, uh, donating to the Tucson Second Chance bailout fund to help black moms, simply. Um, May 27th, there will be an action against CoreCivic, like I'll put in the comments. Using hashtags and tweeting, like AZ Free Them All and Abolition Beyond Detention, there's so much you can do, and it's truly entirely up to you to decide how you want to see it all go down. And I encourage you all to tweet and share your knowledge, share the knowledge of others, share ideas, because knowledge is power. So that's all. Yes, yes.